Daily Drive is brought to you by Reynolds & Reynolds, the industry leader in automotive technology. Find out what Reynolds is up to in the digital retailing space by visiting reyrey.com slash retail anywhere. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y dot com slash retail anywhere. Hi, everyone. This is Steve Schmidt with Automotive News. Welcome to Daily Drive for Wednesday, June 2nd. On the eve of Ford's public unveiling last month of the F-150 Lightning, an all-electric version of the all-time best-selling vehicle in the United States, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow, a self-described truck fanatic, said if Ford can get this right, making the truck better by going electric, goodbye gas-powered vehicles in America. Josh Israel, market leader in the U.S. for automotive supplier Hariba, agrees. We are closer than ever to a future of transportation driven predominantly by electrified vehicles. But he also says the internal combustion engine is not going the way of the steam engine, something you may only see in a museum these days. He sees a future where a mix of power generation, including internal combustion, is being used to meet the needs of various stakeholders. He also believes the relatively low cost of fuel in the United States will also contribute to internal combustion engines being around for the foreseeable future. When it comes to building the infrastructure to support the transition to electric vehicles, Israel describes the journey as a chicken and egg situation. In other words, do you build and deploy enough cars to make the case for investment in infrastructure, or do you build the infrastructure to proactively address consumer concerns with convenience, charge time, and range? Israel believes infrastructure is like the egg, noting America's transition from horse-drawn carriages to automobiles and how the construction of new roads was a significant catalyst in Americans making the transition. He says many of the factors are at play now as the disruption from gas to electric continues. Speaking of history, a quick sidebar. Quote, cars with steam propulsion came in. Not one or two, but more than a hundred. Electric vehicles clogged the market, but in the end, public opinion turned to gasoline because it was clean, safe, and dependable. End quote. Alexander Winton, who is largely credited with selling the first automobile in the United States in 1897, wrote that in an article published in the Saturday Evening Post. The title of the article? Get a Horse! America's Skepticism Towards the First Automobiles. The date? April 15, 1911. 110 years ago. What kind of impact, if passed, would the administration's plan for infrastructure and clean energy have on EV adoption in America? What are some of the longer-term trends and alternative powertrains, including hydrogen and natural gas, to watch? We've reached Josh Israel, market leader in the U.S. for Hariba, in his home office in Indianapolis, Indiana. Josh, thanks so much for joining me today on Daily Drive. How are you? I'm doing great, Steve. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to speak with you. Really exciting conversation today as the conversation around electric vehicles continues to grow in frequency and importance in the automotive industry. So let's hop in what I think is a compelling question, maybe question on top of a lot of folks, miners. When are we going to see the last production of internal combustion engines? Yeah, I know that that certainly is jumping right in. I uh <laughs> I, I, it's it's a really compelling question, and and yes, it's on everyone's mind, right? I think, I mean, my own personal perspective, and I think the perspective of a lot of people in our industry is that 
the internal combustion engine is not going to be something like a steam engine where the only place you would see it is in a museum, right? Uh, I, I think uh, when we think about the, the trends in electrification and playing them out to their ends, there's probably always going to be a place for the internal combustion engine, although certainly you could see the current ratio flip in that, you know, uh, 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 e-powertrain or battery electric uh, mobility solutions become the dominant mode and the ICE becomes the application in niche uh, applications, you know, for, for example, power generation uh, and other places where uh, emergency concerns would always be a driver. I think the, the ICE will, uh, will always have a place. Um, I think maybe a, a a better question, better is not fair. Let's call it a different question. <laughs> would be would be when would we see that ratio flip, right? When are we right. going to see the the EVs become uh, become dominant? And uh, the, man, the the predictions are all over the map. Uh, I know you follow this uh, as as a lot of us do. Uh, but uh, I, something like you know the twenty forty time frame globally is a, a number you see thrown out when uh, the global uh, fleet of vehicles w might crack 40, uh, 40 to 50% would be EVs. Um, and what's really interesting to Hariba, uh, and I'm sure a lot of, of your listeners as well, is are what are the factors that are going to drive that change? Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. That, that, that's really the things that we look at, is, is not when is it going to happen, but maybe what are the things that are going to cause it to happen? Um, and And thinking about at a high level, what we see those drivers as are our regulations, right? So greenhouse gas and fuel economy regulations are gonna drive uh, not only the, the demand for those, but certainly the, it'll put pressure on the supply side. Uh, government funding for infrastructure, I know that's one of the things we're hoping to talk about today is you know how much is infrastructure gonna impact that, but in my mind, infrastructure and vehicles are a true chicken and egg problem. Uh, you know, are, are we going to need to make infrastructure first to make people feel good about range and and drive adoption of vehicles? Or do we wait until there are enough vehicles on the road that it makes sense to uh, to have all the infrastructure, right, to develop infrastructure? And in my mind, infrastructure is that egg. Uh, I think when we look at the last big revolution in uh, transportation that was of this magnitude, you know, is arguably when we transitioned from the horse to the automobile. I mean, that that is as disruptive as this revolution could be. Um, and if you look at the number of roads that existed before uh, cars were widely adopted, very, very few paved roads. Uh, and that that changed very quickly in a matter of about 10 years, those rows built up and it opened up a pathway for the adoption of the automobile. I think in my mind, charging infrastructure and the infrastructure that will go along with with other uh, sources of EVs, like hydrogen fuel, for example, are absolutely the egg. Uh, and I think it's one of the things that it's hard for the OEM to find a way to pay for. Right. So government funding for infrastructure might be absolutely critical for adoption. Uh, and then the third thing is 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 just cost, you know, simple simple dollars and cents, economic sense, total cost of ownership. Uh, for battery electrics, certainly it's about the declining cost of batteries and or 
breakthroughs in battery technology that'll make those vehicles attractive on a on a dollar per mile basis. So those are the things that we're always looking at uh, that are are maybe not going to tell us when the last ICEs are going to be produced, but would certainly be uh, benchmarks for when EVs will really take off. Uh, and that's what we're, we're very concerned with. Well, there's so many dynamics when you talk about not only electric vehicles, but I would say adoption and scalability of a, of all of these technologies, whether they be connected, whether they be electrified, whether they be autonomous. <laughs> and there's always this dynamic regarding where in the world is this going to happen for all of the factors you just outlined and how different countries tackle all of those. But there's also the piece that says, is this going to happen on the commercial side, on the personal ownership side? And that will happen in phases as well, right? So we could see this happen more so in the commercial side of the of this industry versus the personal ownership side of this industry, frankly, because it's economically more viable. And I think the infrastructure exists. It's easier to make these infrastructure investments in ports and into trucking depots than it is within some of the other areas that would be needed for for uh, personal use and personal charging. Would you agree? Any perspectives on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I would agree with you. And what's more, I think the state of California would agree with you. I mean, that's uh, that's been a big part of their uh, plans to electrify everywhere feasible. You know, that's the that's the quote you, know, you hear from California a lot. And it, it absolutely starts uh, on the commercial side in those, uh, you know, specialized applications, port, drayage, local delivery, uh, anything that starts and stops at the same place every day and has a, a route that is less than 100 miles. You know, those are natural places to electrify. Um, they've already talked about 100% electrification of of specialized applications like uh, um, airport shuttles, right? Things like that, you know, small niches that they can electrify immediately in a way that, that makes sense, not just from a technical perspective, but also the dollars and cents. Yeah, so absolutely, there's going to be a different rate of adoption for all of these different spaces, you know, not just the, the big segments, commercial and pass car, but the sub segments within commercial as well. So yeah, absolutely. There's going to be uh, different drivers for adoption for, for every little niche. So let's focus a little bit on the United States. I think one of the things we enjoy here in the United States are relatively low fuel costs compared mm -hmm. to the rest of the world. How do you think that the low fuel prices in the U.S. coupled with more efficiency out of internal combustion engines year after year, how do you think that's going to impact adoption of EVs in the U.S.? Well, it's it's absolutely going to be a factor uh, and it, it directly impacts that that dollar per mile cost of ownership. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it appears to be very likely and I'm certainly not an expert on energy and oil price trends, uh, but it certainly appears that we're going to continue living in this world where oil prices are fairly low and stable for the near to medium term future. Uh, so as long as that is the case, and as long as there is not, uh, you know, a, a drive for higher taxes at the pump, uh, like there like there is in Europe, for example, uh, where a, a dollar per mile of petrol is significantly more than it is in the U.S., I think as long as that stays true for the U.S., it's going to be one of the things that 
uh, pulls the other way. I, I think there's a lot of factors that are in tension when we talk about BEV adoption, right? There are certain things pulling toward BEV adoption and certain things pulling uh, toward traditional internal combustion powertrains. And the low price of oil is absolutely one of those strings that is pulling towards traditional powertrains. You touched upon infrastructure. You talk about chicken versus egg. What kind of impact do you think Biden's plan for infrastructure and clean energy will have on EV adoption in America? Will it be will it make meaningful change? Will it be a meaningful catalyst to this transition? Um, or or is it something that that certainly is important, needs to happen, but perhaps not as much as a catalyst towards electrification as perhaps some people might feel it can be? Mm. That's a that's a really interesting question. Just because the the bill itself is in such a state of negotiation, right? Uh, so so the answer may be, well, what's it going to look like at the end? Uh, but certainly the things that are being talked about in it have a potential to make an enormous impact. I mean, uh, the original proposed bill was somewhere in the neighborhood of two point three trillion, right? That, that's a massive amount of investment. And uh, the uh, the things that were being talked about were funding for half a million charging stations over the next decade, uh, fully electrifying the the governmental fleets, including the USPS, uh, you know, extensions and potentially additions to the the tax credits for EV buyers. Uh, and those things are going to have enormous impact on the demand. Right. Those are all drivers for the demand. Right. I think the 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 two biggest barriers to adoption that you hear talked about are range anxiety um, and and cost. Right. So charging infrastructure mitigates range anxiety. If there's a if there's a charging station everywhere you go, all of a sudden your anxiety is alleviated. Uh, you know, if you. If you have one at your work and at your home and every filling station or convenience store also has a fast charger, I think range anxiety goes away. Um, and the tax credits are um, an immediate, you know, uh, alleviate those cost concerns, right? If you if your average, the median price of an EV now is about $40,000, something like that, although the uh, the, the most common models that are being bought are, are tend to be a lot more expensive than that. But if all of a sudden you get a $10,000 or more tax credit for buying one, it makes that math a little bit easier for buying one. Uh, so I, I think the impact is potentially very big. Uh, the bigger question in my mind is, what will it really, really look like in a final version? And where will potential compromises be made to those, those things like, like charging infrastructure and tax credits? One of the interesting things that that I continue to hear, at least coming out of the Biden administration, is no plans to raise taxes on everyday Americans outside of those, obviously, that are making more than $400,000 a year. This pay-per-use tax when it comes for using the infrastructure that the government is proposing investments in, which I think is very interesting and I, and I believe will be a critical driver to – getting everyday consumers to consider electric vehicles as their transportation choice. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, th those kind of things, like I said, are are real impacts to the demand side. You know, I, I think uh, uh, 
things like electrifying the the federal fleet and electrifying the USPS incentivizes the supply side, right? Uh, and mm-hmm. California has done the same thing with their, you know, uh, electrification sales mandates there. Uh, all of a sudden, they've got, you know, almost all of the commercial vehicle OEMs lining up to make more EVs. Uh, and and uh, I, I think there's a potential impact there. But like you said, you know, there needs to be some impact on the demand side uh, or, or uh, I don't see the adoption rates being uh, meeting those ambitious goals uh, on the pass car side. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back with more. As online experiences exploded this past year, it was clear dealers needed an approach that kept them in business for the long term. Chris Walsh, Casey Edwards, and Dave Bates, Top Reynolds executives, sat down to discuss today's digital retailing landscape. Here's an excerpt from that roundtable discussion. So what are dealers trying to do to get this fully online and online to in-store experience? I mean, that's a great question. And honestly, it's, a, it's kind of a hard one to answer because retailers are kind of defining and using digital retailing differently. You know, to some dealers, it's selling a car. To other, it's sales and F&I. And they, they tend to be approaching it in chunks versus, you know, kind of a holistic, holistic approach. And then you end up just focusing on one or two things when you need to focus on, you know, more of a big picture. Digital retailing is dealership operations, period. Reynolds' Retail Anywhere approach focuses on streamlining dealership operations and improving profitability. For more information about this big-picture, holistic approach, visit reyrey.com slash retailanywhere. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y dot com slash retailanywhere. So you talk about, we talk about uh, everyday demand. We talk about consumer demand. Talk to me about the significance of Ford last week unveiling an all-electric version of the F-150, the best-selling vehicle in the United States for the last 40-plus years in this announcement that they're going all-electric. I heard one journalist say last week that if Ford can get this right, goodbye gas-powered vehicles in the United States. How important is that vehicle to this effort? Yeah, I mean that that's it's hard to overstate uh, for the reasons you just said. Um, I, I looked it up uh, in 2019. Ford sold about 900,000 units of the F-150, uh, which was not just the best-selling truck, but the best-selling car of all types. Right, and this that that cannot be overstated how significant that is. Um, you know, I, I think speaking in generalities, Americans don't buy as many cars as we used to. Uh, everything is trending toward SUVs and, and pickups, uh, has been for a long time, and, and now those uh, those types of vehicles are dominant. And here's a major OEM, you know, the biggest OEM in this country, jumping in with both feet, uh, electrifying their most popular model uh, with a price tag that starts around 40000 right, which I think is certainly within the reach of a person going to buy a new pickup truck in this country. So this is, uh, this is big. I mean, I think all eyes are going to be on the sales of that in year one. Because like you said, if they get it right, uh, there's going to be uh, a lot of people wanting to jump into that market as well. So getting the tech right, getting consumer confidence to not only believe in the technology, but Opening up their pocketbooks to invest in that technology is one thing. Building them at scale 
is an entirely different challenge. <laughs> yeah. Do you think there's enough material, enough diversity in the supply base, enough resiliency in the supply base to actually build this many EVs and maybe more specifically batteries at a scale that is needed to to meet the U.S. Uh, or to meet the needs of, of cars like the F-150? Yeah, excellent question, right? And, uh, you know, if you look at the let's look at the thing about the forecasts of what percentage of the the U.S. Uh, light duty sales could be out to 2030 or 2040 is a big range, you know, uh, but the the more ambitious numbers expect, you know, about 25 percent uh, of uh, vehicles to be electrified by 2030 and perhaps as many as 50 or 60 percent by 2040. Right. So to hit those kind of goals, we're talking about millions upon millions of vehicles. Right. Not a few hundred thousand uh, not even a few million. We're talking about tens of millions and cumulatively hundreds of millions by 2040. Right. So to really build that many batteries uh, is material scarcity becomes a real concern. Uh, certainly new lithium stores would need to be tapped. And uh, at the moment, you know, that's the South American lithium reserves that are that are, uh, you know, under, in the spotlight, Bolivia, Argentina, Chile. Uh, have the largest untapped global reserves, although the United States is number four on the list. So there is potential for domestic development as well. well. Uh, And then cobalt and some of the other uh, smaller contributors to those batteries, but very important contributors, also become a big concern. Uh, You know, about two-thirds of the world's cobalt comes from uh, DRC, and uh, there would be big concerns about them being able to scale up their production by an order of magnitude or two uh, in, a, in a safe way, right? So, so absolutely, uh, material scarcity and, and uh, supply chain resilience is a concern when we think about the high end of, of, of those adoption rates. So when you look at electrification and you look at other forms of alternative powertrains, we've heard a lot about hydrogen. We've heard about natural gas, particularly in those use cases like airport shuttles that you noted earlier. What are some of the longer trends we ought to be watching in these other uh, alternative sources of of powertrains for, for the automotive industry? Yeah, hydrogen is very large on our radar and we tend to track investments right and right now the commercial vehicle segment is putting massive investments into hydrogen uh you know some examples are the cummins acquisition of hydrogenics uh volvo and daimler are partnering to commercialize fuel cells i think volvo made a 600 million euro investment just last year right toward fuel cell system commercialization and when companies make investments that large, it's because they expect to get something out of it, right? So certainly they're they're laying the groundwork to expand hydrogen in a big way. Hydrogen, in my mind, makes so much sense for a commercial vehicle industry because it's still a chemical fuel uh, that results in, in zero emissions, at least at the source. Uh, so certainly hydrogen is going to be a big part of that. Compressed natural gas, I think without a doubt, is going to be a big part of the strategy in the near term. Seems to be getting a lot of traction in China. Uh, the U.S. has a very large and stable supply of natural gas. 
and you hear a lot about things like renewable natural gas getting a lot of a, a lot of play, particularly in California as well. So, hydrogen is uh, is uh, to me very bullish right now. I think there's a lot going on with hydrogen. Has some similar concerns in terms of uh, infrastructure to to generate that fuel, and maybe more importantly, generate that fuel from renewable sources so that it can be done in a sustainable low carbon footprint way but uh wow uh hydrogen is very big right now in commercial vehicles and, and really very big for Hariba. do you think that we are going to find ourselves for the next several decades in a situation where we are moving away from internal combustion engines using multiple technologies electrification hydrogen natural gas where it makes sense um, rather than going all in on on something other than internal combustion engine? Yeah, it, it's really hard to see uh, one technology winning early. Um, I think when we talk about predicting out to 2040, it's, it's so dangerous. I think uh, if you asked anybody in 2019 what was 2020 going to be like, no one would have got the answer right. It was uh, definitely an interesting year, <laughs> right? So, so it's hard to it's hard to, to to really predict out. Oh, by 2040, this is going to win, uh, without a doubt. In the near term, there's going to be a lot of pieces. There's going to be a diversity of technologies that are all part of this puzzle. Um, I always think, you know, you, you you try to predict out those trends 20 and 30 years. It's very easy uh, to imagine a future where everything is electrified. It's impossible to imagine a near term uh, that we would get to that stage without all of these technologies in place. Uh, so I, I think there's going to be a continue to be a, 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 a diversity of solutions, not just on the zero emissions front in terms of battery electric fuel cells, but also on the combustion side, right? There's still a lot of work to be done in driving up the efficiency of the internal combustion engine in hybridization and use of alternative fuels, CNG, propane, even hydrogen for combustion, uh, dual fuel technologies. I, I think the near term is, is really going to be a, a large diversity of technologies that help us meet near and medium term goals. And then we'll see what happens 10 years from now in terms of steering towards uh, a, a technology that might be the long-term solution. Yeah, and part of that is going to be driven by what cons what consumers like, right? If for some reason they gravitate towards one particular technology versus another, I, that's going to be a big driver of what wins out in the end as well. Uh, in the past car space, that's, I think, going to be the driver. Uh, I, I think it's uh, ultimately people that buy cars will determine what cars the automakers uh, want to sell. Absolutely. Why don't we close with looking ahead um, more around potential barriers, potential challenges. When you think of scaling and adoption of EVs and frankly, any alternative powertrain solutions that you've touched upon in our conversation, what are the things you're watching as potential barriers, as potential challenges that need to be overcome? Well, I think we've touched upon it a little bit here already. Hey, the, the two biggest uh, in the past car space, and perhaps for commercial vehicles too, but the two biggest are, are range anxiety and cost. Uh, you know, I, I think 
total cost of ownership for a person is very different than it is for a commercial fleet that has to use that to make money. Uh, but but certainly cost is a big barrier right now. Uh, I think we see the 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 general trend of declining cost of batteries and the knowledge that the battery accounts for 70 to 75 percent of the cost of those vehicles in some cases uh, means that that uh, you know the, the cost is trending in the right direction. Uh, but at the moment, on a dollar per mile basis. Uh, BEVs, particularly in the commercial space, are, are just not at quite at parity with traditional internal combustion sources. Um, you know, there are efforts to make hydrogen uh, cost competitive out by 2030, but that, in in most people's minds, is still a bit of a long game. Uh, and then the other the other challenge, I think, is range anxiety, and I think the answer there is is about infrastructure. It's about uh, how can you make people and perhaps fleets feel good that they'll be able to operate those vehicles everywhere and at every time they need to? Uh, and certainly those two things are linked because if it's the consumer or the fleet who's responsible for paying for that infrastructure, then it just piles more onto the, the cost per, per mile equation. Uh, so in my mind, those are the two big things that are potential barriers for mass adoption. Uh, but regulations and government funding for infrastructure are absolutely a part of the the the, the answer to to both of those things as well. So all of these things are so dynamic and interrelated. It is certainly going to be an interesting journey watching all of this unfold. So many different levers, so many different inputs in terms of how these scenarios are going to unfold. Josh, thank you for spending a few minutes with us today on Daily Drive and sharing your perspective on the electrified future of vehicles. Yeah, thank you for having me. I had a great time. That's Daily Drive for Wednesday, June 2nd. For breaking news, go to autonews.com. And to catch up on all of our episodes of Daily Drive, go to autonews.com forward slash daily drive. As always, thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.